Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk with an infectious disease specialist about the rising number of cases of sexually transmitted diseases. So a couple that we see quite often are viral. Um, one of the ones I always want to make sure that I bring up is human papillomavirus or HPV. Then we'll hear about how more people are surviving cancer. The improvements in treatment have been a lot related to cancers of the blood and lymph systems, and these are the leukemias and lymphomas. And we'll talk with a doctor of physical therapy with important advice for how to safely use modern electronic devices. Having choices of, of movement, and, and really the key is, is just trying to change up your activity and your position. All that, a checkup from the neck up, and a selection from our healing muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll hear why more people are surviving cancer. Then we'll talk with a doctor of physical therapy about the safe way to use modern electronic devices. But first, an infectious disease expert will tell us what we need to know about gonorrhea, syphilis, chlamydia, and other sexually transmitted diseases. A recent report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that progress in the fight against sexually transmitted diseases has unraveled, with rates for some of the most common STDs on the rise. Here to help put this in perspective for Central New York is Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She is Assistant Professor of Infectious Disease at Upstate Medical University, where she is Medical Director of Immune Health Services. She's also the Medical Director of Onondaga County's STD Center. Welcome, Dr. Asatio Reddy. Thank you. Uh, Onondaga County has the highest number of cases per capita of several common STDs, including gonorrhea. So let's start there. Why, why is that? One of the things that happens with any kind of, uh, many kinds of infections, including sexually transmitted infections, is that once they become established in a population, it becomes more difficult for us to get over the hump and um, make the, the rates go down in that population. So uh, I think there's a combination of factors in Onondaga County that include a number of colleges and universities where people are sometimes experimenting with sex for the first time and may have many sexual partners, along with um, longstanding poor access to health care for other populations where sometimes not going into health care providers can propagate illnesses within the community. So I suspect that our numbers reflect those kinds of um, concerns in our area. So maybe once people are infected, they're not getting treated or not getting recognized and Correct. getting treated, and then it spreads without... Correct. Well. Many sexually transmitted infections can be asymptomatic, meaning that they may not have any obvious signs or symptoms. People might, might not know that they're infected, and they may be infected for a long time and spread that infection to others before anything comes to medical attention. So gonorrhea is the one of the ones that's higher here than other places. Correct. What are, are there symptoms that men or women, that affects both genders? 
It does. Um, though, interestingly, men almost always have symptoms and women most often do not have symptoms. Oh. And so it can be very difficult to identify in women and they may carry the infection for a long time, sometimes with uh, long-term consequences for their reproductive health. Um, whereas when men get sick, they do tend to come in pretty quickly, um, usually because of burning when they urinate, the most okay. common symptoms. So that would be alarming enough to go see a doctor, but if Correct. you don't have any symptoms... Um, if you get regular uh, checkups, would gonorrhea be discovered during a Absolutely. gynecologic exam or something? Absolutely. So for women um, less than age 25, a regular screening yearly for gonorrhea and chlamydia as well, the test is actually done together at the same time using the same sample is recommended. Um, for anybody 25 and up who's had new sexual partners, or certainly if they have any concerns on exam, um, then that would be added to their panel. For people who come into the Sexually Transmitted Infection Center, we routinely conduct these types of screening on everyone. So everyone who walks through the door and says, I want to be tested, that test would be done regardless of what kinds of symptoms they're having. Okay. Now, what about chlamydia? That's also pretty high numbers in our community, correct? Correct. And chlamydia can actually uh, be tricky for both uh, men and women. It's more commonly symptomatic. So again, more commonly men would show signs and symptoms that they have an infection compared to women. Um, but different from gonorrhea, both men and women can be asymptomatic. So meaning they may not really have any idea that they have that infection. Um, and for those who do have the infection, especially for women, again, the biggest thing that we worry about over the long run, same as with gonorrhea, is that there can be inflammations in the, in the tubes um, that can lead to, to what we call tubal infertility. So that means that um, the fallopian tubes which carry the egg into the uterus um, can be scarred, can be um, narrowed down. And so that can make it difficult at the time that a woman is trying to conceive um, that there may be a problem in, in getting the sperm and the egg to meet. Um, also, something called ectopic pregnancy, where a, a pregnancy actually establishes itself inside the, the fallopian tube can occur for people who have scarring in their tubes. And so for both gonorrhea and chlamydia for women, that's one of the things that we get most concerned about. Um, for women as well, that can lead to something called pelvic inflammatory disease. Pel pelvic inflammatory disease is um, a, a more severe form of inflammation and infection in the uterus and the fallopian tubes. Um, and that can cause fevers, abdominal pain, back pain, nausea, vomiting. Sometimes it can be severe enough to require someone to go into the hospital. Most women who have gonorrhea chlamydia do not develop a pelvic inflammatory disease, but because those two infections are both associated with a, a much higher risk of, of pelvic inflammatory disease, it's another reason why we feel very concerned and want to make sure we're identifying and treating women who have those infections. But again, like I said, most women who have um, both gonorrhea and chlamydia, and especially chlamydia, don't have symptoms at all. So it becomes very important. And you can have important. both at the same time. You can well. actually have both okay. at the same time. So it becomes very important for um, accessing routine screening, particularly for women who have become sexually active and are less than age 25, um, and anyone who's 25 and up who has new sexual partners and has had unprotected sex. Doing regular screening is really critical. Um, and again, men with chlamydia may present with symptoms, oftentimes burning with urination, um, but they may also carry it without really having very many symptoms. Now there's other STDs too that's, that are a concern um, in this area as well besides gonorrhea and chlamydia. What are, what are the ones that you see most often? 
So a couple that we see quite often are viral. Um, one of the ones I always want to make sure that I bring up is human papillomavirus, or HPV. HPV is by far and away the most common sexually transmitted infection in the United States and probably in the world. Um, and it looks like more than half of people uh, are infected with HPV at any time in their lives. Probably the majority of people who have ever had sex have been infected with HPV at one time in their lives. And, and don't know it. Correct, and oftentimes don't, don't know it. So the things that we know that HPV is associated with, um, it can be associated with genital warts. Um, there are many different types, of, subtypes of HPV, and some of those subtypes tend to be more associated with genital warts. Others tend to be more associated with long-term changes um, in the genital area that can lead to cancer down the line. So most people who get an HPV infection will clear it on their own over the course of one to two years, whether that's genital warts or whether it's another kind that they don't even see the symptoms of or the signs of. Um, however, some people, for whatever reason, sometimes it's a difference in their immune system or conditions that, that make their immune system weaker, um, do not clear the infection as quickly. And in particular, those individuals are at risk for developing precancer and cancer down the line. So when we talk about pap smears, even though a pap smear we may or may not associate with anything having to do with a sexually transmitted infection, what we're really looking for is changes associated with the HPV virus. Um, so HPV is one of the most common things that we see. When we see it, what we see, for example, in uh, STD center is we see genital warts. Um, but many people coming to STD center have HPV infections that we don't otherwise recognize because of just having had contact, sexual contact. So it's very, very easily spread with any sexual contact. Now, HPV, that's the one that has there's a vaccine for, right? Exactly. Yeah, so I always want to make sure that I really promote the HPV vaccine. Um, HPV vaccine is, is called Gardasil is the brand name, um, and it actually covers nine different subtypes of HPV, including the types that are the most frequently associated with cancer or precancer, um, and also the subtypes most frequently associated with genital warts. So it really covers the spectrum of what we're most concerned about. Um, and that vaccine is available starting from age 9 up through age 26. Age 11 to 12 is the target age that we really try to get that vaccine done. Um, and one of the main reasons for that is for 11 and 12 year olds, it's recognized that you only need two shots as opposed to a three shot series once you get older. Um, so that's the prime age that the immune system is going to respond best to the vaccine. And so we really encourage pediatricians, parents, um, you know, legal caregivers who are able to consent for the vaccine to get that done during the adolescent period. And particular because, as we said, the vast majority of people who have had any sexual contact will come in contact with HPV at some point because it's so easily transmitted from person to person. So if you're older than age 26, though, um, do you need the vaccine or should you seek it out? Great question. As of yet, we don't have enough evidence to say that people over the age 26, over age 26 in general as a population benefit from HPV vaccine. The main reason being that by that point, most people have already been exposed to the viruses that are in the vaccine. 
Um, however, any individual person might be different. Um, so somebody who's never had sex up through age 26 might still benefit from the, the vaccine. However, they may not get it covered by their insurance. So anyone who um, thinks they might benefit from the vaccine at an older age should definitely have a conversation with their healthcare provider. And the chances are they could get that covered in some other way um, or even potentially pay for it on their own if that's something that they're concerned about. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Elizabeth Asiago-Reddy about sexually transmitted diseases. Um, now, some of the ones that we've talked about, uh, HPV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, there's others that I want to get to, syphilis, HIV, trichomonas. The, some, are, some are viruses, some are bacteria, some are parasite, um, and they're all sexually transmitted. But is it easier or harder to transmit some than others? Is it harder to contract? That's or? a great question. Um, I think probably HPV is exceptional in how easy it is to transmit. Um, others, including herpes, which we haven't mentioned up until now, gonorrhea, chlamydia, may or may not transmit, say, with one sexual encounter. Um, and we don't always have the greatest way of predicting what percentage likelihood someone has has of getting a sexually transmitted infection with one sexual encounter, um, because sometimes it depends on what type of sex they're having, how healthy they are. Uh, but generally speaking, um, for people who have been exposed to gonorrhea or chlamydia, so we know their partner had gonorrhea or chlamydia, because we consider them to be very significant sexually transmitted infections, we would treat that person regardless of any symptoms, regardless of waiting to see whether they get the infection. The same holds true for syphilis. Um, we would treat uh, contacts of, of people who are known to have syphilis with uh, the medication to treat syphilis because it's a serious infection. We don't want to wait and find out whether somebody contracted it. Um, I do want to briefly mention herpes because I haven't brought that up. Herpes is also very, very common uh, sexually transmitted infection that's quite easily spread from person to person. Um, and it can be confusing to people because there are two types of herpes, type 1 and type 2. Um, type 1 can be spread by saliva, close contact with, let's say, kissing somebody, sharing food or drink with somebody, and many people are infected with type 1 when they're children, and that causes cold sores. Um, type 1, however, can also infect the genital area. Um, and so it can be very difficult to know whether uh, something that's a herpes infection um, was something that was contracted in childhood versus something that was contracted in adulthood um, based on a blood test, for example, because we might not be able to distinguish those two. Um, type 2 herpes tends to just live in the genital area, um, and so a blood test for type 2 that's positive would indicate uh, likely a sexually transmitted infection. Um, however, the symptoms in the genital area of type 1 and type 2 are the same, which is sores and blisters coming on from time to time, and yet many, many people also don't have symptoms of herpes and yet can spread it to other people. So this is one of the most common questions that we get at the Sexually Transmitted Infection Center is saying, um, I have something that looks like herpes, does this mean that my partner and my new partner gave it to me? Does it mean that my, new, that, that my old partner is not faithful to me? And we oftentimes don't know the answer to that because um, whatever partner that person had might not have had any symptoms at the time that the, the person we're seeing contracted their infection. And is there, do condoms prevent the spread? Of, Absolutely. They do? Yes. Okay. So condoms are highly effective in preventing the spread basically of all sexually transmitted infections. 
HPV is a bit more difficult because even skin-to-skin contact in the genital area can spread HPV, and oftentimes skin-to-skin contact will happen before somebody uses a condom. Uh, But even having said that, condoms still are effective in preventing the cervical infection with HPV. So really, condoms are highly effective at preventing all of these sexually transmitted infections. If you had one STD, are you more likely to get another? Does it set you up and um, make you more susceptible in any way? Yes, that's another great question. Uh, Once the the skin and the area becomes inflamed and you have one kind of infection, that sets up an avenue for another infection to go in. So it's very true that people who have one type of infection are at increased risk for other types of infections. Um, Also, because, as I said, infections tend to circulate within certain communities, once a certain community has a higher risk of infection, um, let's say college students, then because college students are likely to have sex with other college students, then it becomes more likely for you to contract whatever infection is running around that group. Well, I'm sorry that we have run out of time, but uh, this has been Dr. Elizabeth Asiago Reddy. She's the medical director for Onondaga County's STD Center, as well as the medical director of Upstate Medical University's Immune Health Services. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air podcast. Stay with us next, why more people are surviving cancer on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Smith and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. The death rate for cancer peaked 25 years ago in 1991 and has been dropping ever since. And today, overall, the death rate is the lowest it has been. In New York State alone, there are more than a million survivors of cancer. Here to talk about this is Dr. Leslie Coleman, Professor of Surgery and Director of Outreach for the Upstate Cancer Center. Thanks for being here. Happy to be here, Amber. All right. Well, let's start first by explaining what a, uh, what a death rate is. We measure death rate by how many deaths from cancer in 100,000 people. This is to stabilize it for different population. Our population has grown, so we have more cancers by number, but the rate ah, is lower. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, um, and the death rate from cancer peaked in 1991. Why has it been, what happened in 1991 that made it peak and then it's been dropping since then? Well, one of the major reasons for the drop is reduction in smoking. Back in the 1970s and 80s, almost half of all people in the United States smoked, especially men. This is now down to less than 20%, and in New York State, less than 15%. So this is one of the major reasons. We also have had advances in detecting cancer early when it's still curable, in particular colonoscopy, which also removes precancerous polyps, and more recently, CT scanning for lung cancer, which Mm. can detect lung cancer when it's still curable. Okay. Treatments have also gotten better. Okay. 
Well, which are there specific cancers that are most responsible for the decreasing death rate? Yes, lung cancer, of course, because of the reduction in smoking. There is less lung cancer in men and now also in women than there used to be. And the other three most common cancers of solid organs, breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colorectal cancer. Now, I must say that there's a little twitch in the colorectal cancer rate in that a recent report shows that people born around 1990, the millennials and the Gen Xers, have almost twice as high a rate of colorectal cancer as people born around 1950. And these people are less than 50 years old, which when we normally start screening. So I anticipate more research and eventually new guidelines on who might be at higher risk and therefore need to be screened sooner. Now these rises are one of the major remaining reasons that we have so much cancer and that is the combination of obesity and low physical activity among our population. And for colorectal cancer, it's also believed to be partly due to a low-fiber diet. Low-fiber diet. So it's lifestyle changes that can make the most difference. That does sound pretty alarming, though, to be a double risk. So um, that's interesting. We will have to keep an eye on that. Um, But getting back to the the drop in the death rate, what are some of the reasons for this? Well, um, as we mentioned, the reduction in smoking, early detection, and treatment. But the improvements in treatment have been a lot related to cancers of the blood and lymph systems. And these Uh. are the leukemias and lymphomas and also something people may have heard of as uh, myeloma or myeloproliferative disorders. These improvements are due to treatment because there is no prevention or screening for these diseases. And we now have special drugs that can do an amazing job with some of these blood and lymph cancers. Okay, so new new drugs that have been discovered or developed? And, right. Okay, I must tell everyone, though, that only a small percentage of new drugs with promise actually turn out right because early reports often show that a drug is effective in a small group of special patients, but when applied to more patients, they don't really hold up to their Mm, promise. So the drugs that we have that have been such miracle workers are a very, very small uh, number of the drugs that have been discovered. Okay, all right. Well, I keep saying that the overall um, death rate has improved, but when you look at this more closely, Um, Are are we seeing the same improvements in men versus women or different races, different populations, or is is there a bigger story to tell? There's a much bigger story to tell. In fact, for men, cancer death rates have dropped more than women, probably because more men smoked and more men stopped smoking Mm -hmm. sooner. Uh, And so uh, that's the death rate. And for... Uh, different races, African Americans and Latinos have a higher risk of dying from cancer than white people. Do we know why that is? Well, one of the major reasons has been lack of access 
to early detection and treatment. And we know that in certain communities, largely communities which are poor and have higher rates of obesity and smoking, the cancer death rates actually rose considerably while really? falling in other communities. So this is a major, major problem is that we do not have the same improvement among all members of our population. Now, one thing that has improved it a little bit recently and has contributed to this fall in overall death rate is that twice as many African Americans and Latinos now have health insurance after the institution of the Affordable Care oh. Act or Obamacare, and that has helped those communities and those population members to have a reduction in okay. their cancer rates. Well, interesting. I definitely want, I have more questions about that, but let me re remind listeners that this is Upstate's Health Link on Air, and we're talking with Dr. Leslie Coleman from the Upstate Cancer Center about the dramatic drop in cancer death rates overall in the United States. Um, so there's good news about overall cancer death rates dropping, and yet there are some cancers that are seeing an increase. So let's talk about those that are, that are singled out, sort of. Well, we've already mentioned the rising incidence of colorectal cancer in young people. Young. Mm -hmm. Also, liver cancer is rising, primarily due to hepatitis C infection, which is an infection among the baby boomer population, that is people born between 1946 and 1964. And everyone born during that time should have a test for hepatitis C because oh. there are now treatments for it that can help to prevent liver cancer. Huh, okay. Cancer of the esophagus, larynx, and bladder are increasing probably due to smoking and environmental toxins. I saw that um, the incidence in death in men is a lot higher in these than in women. Yes. Like you were saying, for the smoking is probably the reason. Right. And melanoma, malignant melanoma of the skin, the most deadly skin cancer, is rising. The incidence is rising in women. The death rate is actually higher in men. But the rising incidence in women is due to use of artificial tanning. That's booths. what I was going to guess. And this needs to be stopped because there is no health benefit to artificial tanning. And it's definitely led to a large increase in malignant skin cancer among young women. Now, the death rate being higher in men, is that a lack of uh, diagnosis? or It probably is partly due to treatment later in okay. stage, but we don't have enough research to know the exact okay. reasons for much of this. Okay. Uh, what about uterine cancer? Uterine cancer is rising, and this is related to obesity, so it's probably oh. connected to the rise in the rate of obesity among our population. Well, wow, a lot of it comes back to obesity, it seems like. Comes back to lifestyle. The three pillars of a lifestyle to prevent cancer are stop smoking, don't gain weight, and increase your physical activity. Mm -hmm. All sound right. Sound Which are good for then. everything else, too, besides right. pre preventing cancer. All right. Well, the... Um, Getting back to the affordable, the, the American Cancer Society credits the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, with helping to improve these uh, cancer death rates in minorities. But how have the rates of 
insurance or uninsured, um, how does that translate to improved cancer survival? Well, one reason is because one part of the Affordable Care Act has to do with requiring everyone's insurance to cover cancer screening with no deductible, no copay. And this is has allowed many, many more people to have okay. access to colonoscopy, lung cancer screening, mammography, etc. So this protection and this uh, value of by the Affordable Care Act of early detection to allow early treatment and reduction in death is vital and needs to be continued. So it comes down to the screening and getting it. And, and with screening, the idea is that um, you'll find a cancer early when it's most treatable. Right. And with colonoscopy, also prevention, because as I mentioned, oh. removal of precancerous polyps actually prevents cancer from forming. Okay. For lung and breast, it's detection of early cancers that have already developed. Okay, and then with the lung cancer, we have the way to do with the screening right. now, right? Right, Just the, in the last couple of years, it's been approved by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid so that people who have a heavy smoking history and are between 55 and 77 years old should get an annual low-dose CT scan of their lungs so that early lung cancers can be detected and treated and they will survive. Okay. Neat. Well, what do you think needs to happen in order to continue this tra trajectory of improved survivability? Well, we need more clinical and basic research. And one of the things we need research on are strategies to help people be motivated to do the lifestyle oh. changes they need to do. They're the hardest and the most important. So again, I sound like a broken record, but this is what's important. Stop smoking, get a lot of exercise. Walking is fine. 10,000 steps a day is wonderful and not gaining weight well, or getting obese. It, those things do sound simple, but obviously they're not. They're Otherwise not everyone simple. would do it. So Right, exactly. They're free and they don't have any untoward <laughs> bad side effects, but they are the hardest to institute. That's what we need to do. And then um, the Cancer Society is advocating the insurance coverage too. That that's, that's extremely important. Access to early detection, access to care for when you do have a diagnosis, and access to services. If someone has insurance and does have a doctor they could go to, but they don't have any childcare or transportation, right. or they'll lose their job if they take some time off to go to the doctor, they don't have access. Right. right. So it's a big socioeconomic problem, which is why communities of poverty don't have the same cancer survival rate as communities right. with more resources. Okay. Well, uh, the American Cancer Society projects almost 1.7 million people will be diagnosed with cancer this year in 2017. That's a lot of people, but as we've discussed, the outlook for most of them is much better today than if they'd been diagnosed a couple decades ago. Right. So I want to thank Dr. Leslie Coleman for speaking with me about cancer rates in the United States. This has been Amber Smith for Upstate's Health Link on Air. Hi, 
I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's checkup from the neck up. All you need is love or family feuding fun. Well, folks, my wife and I are empty nesters. Our two boys went away to college, one after the other, came home briefly to gather their resources and their courage, check the want ads, say their goodbyes, and off they went. One west coast, the other east. And now they have fiancés, and they're developing careers out there. So Pammy and I are left here in between. And while it's been seven years for one and three for the other, it's only now really sinking in that they ain't coming back. Pangs of loneliness. Sure, we get to see them a few times a year, usually around the holidays, and we chat on the phone, and we try not to call too often to avoid the dreaded non-conversation conversation that basically says, I love you, Dad, but I'm busy with my new life. Yeah, we love them to pieces. And who knew the endless time to quit the video game, guys, and do your homework, and Ah, Dad, do we really? And time to go to bed now. And ah, Mom, do we really? And countless soccer games and lacrosse games and baseball games would actually come to an end forever. Anyway, how to cope with this painful separation. A while back, I saw some research saying smartphones are addicting and difficult to ignore when driving because when the text ping pings, there's a surge of pleasurable brain chemicals saying, answer me, answer me, and text back for another surge. And I saw other research saying, Facebook messages and emails from loved ones are almost as good as real-life visits for making us feel connected and loved. I was very skeptical. How could that be true? An email is just an email, and a hug is a hug, and a kiss is a kiss. Now, I've been late to the smartphone party, just recently getting a hand-me-down one from my older son, and lo and behold, he put this game Word Feud on it, basically Scrabble played with partners over the phone, and he invited me to play with him, and my other son did too, yahoo, so we're playing away and sending playful, teasing, complimentary messages back and forth. And you know what? When the phone pings, it is thrilling. A little brain surge of love. They're thinking of me, talking with me, teasing me, playing with me. And that spells love. L-O-V-E. Only four letters, but the highest scoring word of all. I'm Dr. Rich, Pang Ping, Love on the Brain, O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next... The one thing you can do to reduce your risk of injury from electronic devices such as cell phones and tablets. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air.
Amber Smith and this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. So many people rely on electronic devices of some sort to get through their days, whether by using cell phones, tablets, handheld gaming devices, or laptop computers. How you position yourself while using your device may influence whether you're at risk for developing an injury. Dr. Adam Rufa, an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy Education at Upstate Medical University, is here to talk about the best way to use modern devices. Welcome, Dr. Rufa. Thanks for having me. Now, you've done research yourself on whether there's a connection between posture and shoulder pain. What have you found? Yeah, there, and I picked shoulder pain because shoulder pain is one of those disorders that uh, we've been highly suspicious that posture could have an impact. And, you know, the way the structures are, it makes sense that if you are in certain positions that it would maybe put extra stress on tissues. However, we're finding like a lot of the things that we research, it's a little more complex than that. And so, so really what I did is I did a review of all the studies that have been done to look and see, is there consistent evidence that posture is important? And there actually, I did find very consistent evidence, but it was very consistent evidence that posture does not play a big role really? in developing shoulder pain. Hmm. And that doesn't mean that if somebody already has shoulder pain, that changing their position and posture and how they move might not help. And we do that a lot. Somebody comes in and it hurts to lift my arm up. Sometimes changing how they're sitting and moving can put less pressure on certain structures and it feels better. But to be able to say to somebody that if you sit a certain way or have a certain posture, it'll help prevent or keep you from having shoulder pain. It just doesn't seem like that's the case right now. Maybe as we get better information, um, we'll, we'll change our ideas. But there's been, been several studies. I mean, I, I found nine specific that looked directly at that. And all nine of them did not find the link between the posture somebody had and the amount of pain that they had. Interesting. Okay. Well, what sorts of issues do you see developing in people um, related to their use of electronic devices? Yeah, that's a great question. And there's been a lot on this. And you, you, see, you see news reports all the time about the, the dangers of, of spending too much time on electronics. And I, I agree with them that it probably is dangerous, uh, but more so because when you're on electronics, you're usually not moving. Hmm. Okay. And our bodies are really over the over the our evolution have been have designed to move, and we're not really meant to be staying staying in any one position for a really long time. And our our children, and now and even even as adults, we spend more and more time on electronics and less and less time moving, and that has ramifications throughout. I mean, it, it has ramifications on maybe our musculoskeletal health and if we get pain, right. but also our cardiovascular health. Um, it, it's a risk factor for obesity. Um, and, and so it's really an important thing that we, we put those down every now and then and start moving. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> well, um, what about, uh, I've, I've seen problems with repetitive thumb movements from texting. I've seen issues uh, come up about that. Do you do you see that still? Yeah, you know, and, and the way I always describe it is in our body, there's always a balance. There's a balance between the the stresses we're putting on the tissue okay. and the tissue's ability to then repair itself or even build itself stronger, which is the great thing about bodies that are different than machines. If we use our body in a repetitive way it can actually develop a resistance to that and build the tissue up stronger. 
However, the key is we have to give ourselves, our bodies time to do that. So if you're texting all the time and really using your thumb, you're, you're doing maybe little micro traumas in there. And so if you do that a lot, your body might not have enough time to rebuild it and repair it. So then you kind of slowly weaken that tissue, weaken that tissue, weaken that tissue until maybe you get an injury. Okay. And so it's really thinking about how much time am I spending doing the same task and having kind of um, a, a, a really changing up your movement as much as possible. So texting in different ways, using different devices might increase, might mm. change the stress. Okay. And that goes to the position and how you're looking at the device too. And, and you know, do you, are you always looking down? Can you bring your arms up so you look straight ahead? All those might change the stress on your body and just give your tissues time to heal. So what about the development of the, the touch screen? Um, is that changing the way? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really great question. And, and you, can, you can picture how the ergonomics for the touch screen are maybe different than the old Blackberries we used to have and using right. the double thumbs. And I think um, it, I, I don't know that it's, it's, def, it's related to a specific problem. But again, it's, the doing the, it's using the touch screen the same way over and over over and over again and not getting enough time in between the good news is most of us probably don't use it that much and it's not that stressful that our body adapts to it now there may be other times when your tissue is not healthy for another reason maybe you're maybe you have a very repetitive job at work that stresses the mm. tissue or that you're not stressing the tissue enough so it's not building up its tolerance and so there's a lot of interplay here. And this is, a, this is, again, why it's challenging when we look at these things. We do ergonomic studies. There's a lot of debate about what is the right way to do something and what's the wrong way because it's very complex. And everybody, every patient, every person comes to that, that motion and, and that activity with different sets of uh, variables, right? We, we have stronger tissues or weaker tissues. And so it, it very well, it, it can be individual, Oh. And, and I, I always go with comfort and look for finding a comfortable place to do that. If you're uncomfortable, then it, it, it may not work. I, a great example, my, my wife likes to sit in bed and you know do some screen time be, before she goes to bed and she'll play some game. And she's complaining to me about how she's getting numbness down her arm. Oh. And... So she was having what we call an ulnar nerve entrapment, which you, you, if you've ever hit your funny bone, that's your ulnar nerve okay. at your elbow. Mm -hmm. And when you sit with that bent for a really long time, it stretches that nerve. And then what it does is it reduces the blood flow to that nerve. And nerves really like blood, and then it starts to get a little irritated, and she knows it. So it, for her, the easy fix was simply using a stylus versus her hand and her oh, finger. Oh, wow. Okay. And now that she does that, it takes it away. <laughs> now that might not work for the next person, and it wasn't like I came in knowing that, okay, using a stylus was going to be the answer. It was that let's change the stress on her body because this is not working for her. Let's change it up and see if we can find a way that works. And it's good to have a variety of different ergonomic choices. And that's why I really like adjustable chairs when you're sitting. Not because there's a particular way that's right. That I can go in and say, I'm going to set this chair up not knowing anything about this individual and this is going to be right. It's that person teaching that person how to adjust their chair so they can then find a comfortable spot for them. And that might change throughout the day. Maybe for a couple right. hours it's comfortable one way. They can adjust that chair and then it is comfortable for the rest of the day. Okay. 
Great. Well, we're talking with Dr. Adam Rufa, a physical therapy assistant professor, about the best way to use modern devices, such as cell phones and tablets, on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Um, carpal tunnel syndrome became this huge issue as more Americans began using computers on the job. Is it still a concern? Yeah, carpal tunnel still, still occurs. Um, and again, there's multiple factors. There's some people who can use a computer all day, not have any problems. There's other people who doesn't take much at all. And, and um, some of it is just even the size of the carpal tunnel. And really what that is, is in your wrist, you've got your carpal bones, which are the bones that make up your wrist. And then there's a, 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 a tendon, basically, that goes over them. And underneath, between that, between that band of tissue and your bones, runs your, your median nerve. Okay. And that feeds sensation to your thumb and your first couple fingers. And some people just have less space in that area. So they're more susceptible to getting that irritated. And it's very similar to my wife. It's just a, a nerve entrapment someplace, someplace else, else where okay. their nerve is not getting the blood flow it needs. It's getting pressure and you can start getting symptoms. Okay. Sometimes if you catch it early, you can change how the person's doing things and that'll be enough. Other times it isn't and, and they need more care. So do you have advice for people about how to avoid developing that sort of situation? I think one of the best advice, one of the best advices is try to keep your body out of extreme positions. So I, I remember very well that there's, there's, I have lots of stories about this, but I, I can remember a, a, young, a young child coming in for treatment once. He was maybe 10 or 12 and he was having lots of neck pain. And I'm kind of talking through, and it's not uncommon for kids to have musculoskeletal pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we started talking, it was when he was playing video games. And I find, well, well, how do you sit when you're playing video games? And he likes to sit on the floor, right in front of this tall dresser where the TV is. So he's spending hours with his neck looking all the way up, straight up. <laughs> and so that it, an easy fix was just maybe sit on the bed or change your position. And it's not that looking up is a bad position, but you're just putting your neck in a very extreme spot, stressing some of that tissues and keeping it there. Um, it's also, I've, I've run into people who will be watching television and they'll, their body will be facing forward and they'll turn their neck and watch television and be there for hours. Well, that's maybe not the, first off, I wouldn't suggest sitting and watching TV for hours, <laughs> but maybe straighten yourself straighten up so up. you have more of a neutral position. And the same thing for your wrist. If you're typing, keeping a more in a neutral position and not have your hands bent way up or bent way down when you're doing it. So how do you go about figuring those things out when a patient comes in and says, I mean, is it a lot of interviewing to try to figure yeah. out what their habits are? Yeah, it or? can be challenging. And sometimes you don't find those things. And sometimes it's, it's not the pit. Is as easy as finding a specific position that's helpful. But yeah, it's really talking through with the person and seeing what their daily life is like um, and trying to help them problem solve. Because the goal is really to give them tools to be able to identify what is and what isn't working for them and then having some options about how to change it. Because again, there's a lot of variability and what works for one person might not work for another. So give having choices of of movement and, and really the key is is just trying to change up your activity and your position we're lucky we just got a new building where i work and they gave us all desks that we can sit and stand up oh neat and i find that i don't do well if i stand up for a long time i i, I start feeling uncomfortable but the same thing if i sit for a long time but now i have a choice i can sit some i can stand some i can move around and that's what works best okay okay well, in terms of um, treatments, I mean, being able to have the option to sit on the bed instead of the floor to correct the situation, but are, are there times when other interventions are needed? 
Yeah, there, there is. And a lot of times what we'll look at, if we think, if we narrow it down to it's a tissue problem. So if it's a tendon in my thumb or, or muscle in my neck, we look at doing two things. One is trying to first give advice to reduce the strain on that tissue, but then also to do things like exercise and stretching, which help that tissue to build up a better tolerance mm. to dealing with that stress. So we, I find it's best if you do both. If you try to reduce the amount of stress on that tissue, but also give exercises and other things that help to build up that tissue's tolerance. Because it really is a balance between the tissue's tolerance for stress and the amount of force you put on it. Okay. I wonder if um, the proliferation of electronic devices, if that's had an impact on just the education of physical therapists to be aware of these sorts of things. Well, I, I would say... I mean, it has had some impact as far as awareness. One of the one of the biggest, I think, technology in general has had an amazing impact on healthcare. I mean, I talk a lot about studies, so I can look up. Before I came to this interview, I looked up and I said, "Let me." I know I've seen some studies about posture and neck pain. I've done a lot with posture and shoulder pain, and I can very easily sit down, get on the internet, and pull up study after study that looks at this, where. 15 years ago, I'd have to drive yes. into the library, <laughs> go down to the basement, look through books and try to find information. So it's, it's given us so much greater access to information. So it's been a huge positive. But the negative part of it is that people spend a lot more time not moving, including right. us. Right. <laughs> so we don't move as much. Our patients don't move as much. And that just is, is overall not great for health. But it really, I, I think that of all the of all the thing, all the technologies that have come out, that having access to the research and being able to being able to really get that very quickly is probably the biggest um, advantage we have today okay. than we did 20 years ago. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, this has been your host, Amber Smith, speaking with Dr. Adam Rufa, an assistant professor of physical therapy at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse. And this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Ithaca poet Tish Perlman hosts the popular public radio show called Out of Bounds. There, she interviews a wide variety of people from the arts, from science, from the university, and from medicine. But in her poetry, she offers sometimes dreamy and sometimes discomforting images of the world that lies just outside our physical plane. I'd like to read two of these poems from our new issue of The Muse, the first is Abundant Shadow, for Jean Mackin. You already speak the language of the dead, you who arrived in darkness and left before morning was fully awake. What you most remember, you remember intentionally. How the light fell just so, how November scent is with you still, smoke fires and burning leaves. You need not name the mirage, that silent stretch of road where illusions live, a prelude to what comes after, what comes again. The second poem is called Aftermath. I am convinced that the body was a last minute decision, 
so that the soul would not be forced to wander aimlessly through the world. Death sets us back on course, roaming the cosmos, no end in sight. Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week, we will have an update on smoking and vaping, and we'll discuss firearm violence as a public health issue. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org, or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.